A game as old as Empire. That's into the buzzsaw. Central Intelligence Agency. It was described by witnesses as... Our guest today is a geoscientist who also has a degree, a master's degree in Near Eastern Studies from Berkeley. And you've probably seen her on various shows and reports talking about a whole myriad of things, everything from uh, nuclear radiation to the history of the Persian families, lineages, bloodlines, who she claims still have, still have a rulership position in the world today. Her name is Lorraine Moray, and she is joining us now. Lorraine, thank you for joining us. Thank you. So, you know, when I saw you on the, I think it was Alfred Weber's program, uh, talking, and you mentioned at one point a little bit about the story of the Persian bloodline families that go back to Bab- ancient Babylon and Mesopotamia and perhaps Sumeria. But the point is that it's it's a it's an old imperial dynasty that you claim has actually carried on and still has positions of power in the world today. So I felt like I, that was really a fascinating topic. And I've heard, obviously, from different arguments that Babylon is basically the heart of uh, the empire, in the mo- even in the modern world. We know that there's bloodline families and dynasties. So I really wanted to get into this, this topic with you today as to what, A, your thesis is and how you came, first of all, how you came across this, this, this concept of bloodlines that are dating themselves back to the ancient Persian Empire? Well, I was invited to the Hiroshima and Nagasaki memorial events in the year 2000. And it was just sort of accidental. Someone couldn't go and they said, oh, do you want to go? <laughs> and I'd never been to Asia. So I said, sure. And um, uh, that changed my life. And I decided to dedicate the rest of my life to... Uh, radiation issues, nuclear technologies, and then the uh, impact on the environment and public health. And little did I know, I was entering (laughs) the most interesting and the most adventuresome time in my life. And um, it's taken me just about everywhere. Uh, because radiation touches every, everything, every issue, it affects everything. And so it was a great roller skate to go through history, to go through science, to go through geopolitics. Um, it was just wonderful integrating all the information and the 50 countries I visited and all my own adventures all came together in a very unique way. And uh, so I spent 10 years from 2000 to 2010 uh, a lot of time with one of the last living Manhattan Project scientists. His name was Marion Falk. He was in his late 80s when I met him. And um, he'd always wanted a student. And I wanted to learn about radiation. And he'd made the hydrogen bomb work. It wasn't Edward Teller. And um, so he was really, really fun. And it was like sitting under a tree with Plato for the day. So for 10 years, I go to his house in Livermore. I was a uh, federal whistleblower at the Livermore Lab. And he and I would um, talk about the philosophy of science and all kinds of things. We didn't sit and read books and do calculations. We had an adventure, intellectual adventure, and it was really fun. 
And so he gave me scientific self-confidence, uh, social self-confidence. Um, he really loved me, and I really loved him. We were great friends. Um, he was shocked to be with a woman, uh, a young woman, and, and doing this, but finally he accepted it. And, um, and so I started going around the world uh, talking about this issue. He asked me to be a spokesperson. And um, so I studied the science of radiation and the biological effects and the environmental effects for 10 years, 18 hours a day on my own. I didn't do anything else. I didn't have vacations. I hardly had any money. And um, it was really fantastic. But one day in 2010, I was sitting there at my computer and I said, wait a minute. Chernobyl, uh, nuclear power plant accidents, uh, nuclear bombs accidentally blowing up, things like that. I said, this really can't be an accident. And I said, there has to be something more behind it. So I just sat down at my computer and I googled University of California plus skull and bones. And that took me from science through the nuclear weapons program right straight to the bankers. And I realized that all weapons of mass destruction exist for the um, the bankers. And even the universities, were they exist for the bankers too and, and to train people, mainly the middle class, to work for them and make more money for them. So... Um, well, it's always interesting how much the banks own as far as, you know, the fact that people have to consider the fact that banks actually own ins- or have, have majority ownership of co- corporations, insurance companies, brokerages. I mean, you name it, right? They, they have these, ma- they have these massive things. So, I mean, so their issue, basically they're, they're loaning you money, but then you're spending a lot of that or all of the money you're, lo- you're, you're being loaned in some form is coming back to the same banks that have issued you the, the money, money in the first place. And it's not like they created it. They obviously, I mean, they did create it from thin air in the first place. But the point is they're, issuing, they're loaning you money that actually was based on money you put into your savings account in the beginning of the, of the story. So it's very, at the end of the day, it does go back to this issue of bankers' power in the world. That people, people once you start to look at the chain of, of, of influence and power, it really does lead you there. It's, there's no way of, to avoid that. That's right. And um, I didn't really know anything about bankers, um, except that I had some boyfriends who were bankers, but they were kind of boring, so I wanted more adventure. And um, I wasn't really interested in money anyway. So um, after after following these, these um, weapons of mass destruction, to tying them to bankers, then I began to learn about the Rothschilds and... Um, the international financiers and how the money system works. And one day I sat down and I pulled up a graph of oil prices from 1946 until I think it was uh, 2012. And um, I started looking at it and I said, well, every time that oil prices or the dollar goes down, oil prices go down because they were always pegged to the U.S. dollar. And then I said, but what makes them come back up again? What what makes the value of the dollar come back up again? And so um, 
there where all of these declines, rapid declines were, I looked up what happened in history that year, and I started putting the wars and the false flags on there, 9-11, Chernobyl, um, the Vietnam War, um, the Iraq-Iran War. The Vietnam War was not about um, oil. It was about getting new uh, drug sources, in other words, heroin sources and drug sources for the international uh, dope racket. It's called Dope Incorporated. Right. Uh, actually, you know about that. So um, so then I said, well, um, gosh, pretty soon I had every decline of the dollar and decline of oil prices labeled with a war, uh, some kind of a police action, a false flag, every one of them. And I said, my God, since the Iraq-Iran war, every single one of those events included nuclear materials. and Including 9-11. All of them, yes. Um, How so? Uh, uh, oh, well, because they used mini-nukes. At, at the uh, World Trade Center, and there's a professor, retired professor at UC Davis named Dr. Cahill, and I wanted to switch with uh, geomagnetics to, um, to um, particulates, and to he was studying um, global pollution, and he started a whole global um, group of scientists, and they got international funding, he made all the instruments. He um, invented them to measure, to collect samples, and then of these very tiny particles, nanoparticles. And um, he was privately asked or informally to monitor the 9-11 site um, in about uh, six weeks after 9-11 happened, the World Trade Center. So he brought all his instruments that he'd made, put them on top of a roof in New York City of a, a building uh, about a mile downwind from the 9-11 site, and he measured it for uh, over a year. And um, and I looked at, I sent reporters to interview him, and they came back with big notebooks full of all of the elements that he was measuring and uh, the qu- the quantity and everything. And um, I noticed that there was um, tritium, radioactive hydrogen. That's what they use in the trigger of nuclear bombs. There was uranium-235. That's the fissile material that forms the core of a nuclear um, weapon. And um, deuterium and um, things that they only put in nuclear weapons. And so then I knew they'd use many nukes there. There's no other reason for those elements to be there, isotopes. And, um, of course, so many of the um, emergency responders have died. And it's uh, partly from the nuclear materials and the combination of chemicals that were released that they were inhaling in huge amounts. But it's also from the radioactive materials that they were uh, exposed to. And at the Pentagon... A cruise missile went through that building, and I have pictures from an Army helicopter that uh, Major Doug Rocky gave me 
that showed not a blade of of grass out of out of uh, being completely normal, and the whole lawn was clean and everything in front of the Pentagon where the missile hit. Right. And it went, um, it made a 16-foot diameter bullet hole in the Pentagon. It went through like five layers of walls that had been retrofitted and, and uh, had extra um, resistance to, um, to uh, force. And at the uh, very last wall that that, uh, cruise missile depleted uranium warhead penetrated. There were great big letters about three feet high across the top of the hole, and uh, the uh, the the uh, the investigative team had written "punch out hole." Punch out hole is a word used in military uh, testing and so forth of projectiles and. Uh, that was proof that that's where the depleted uranium warhead came out of that building. You're saying that you saw evidence of depleted uranium being used as a, as a tactile weapon, warhead weapon, from going back to the Iran-Iraq war in the 80s in in all of these various war scenarios, including, including 9-11. But what does that mean then? Uh, what that means is the um, the U.S. economy... Uh, which um, is the basis for the petrodollar. Uh, the petrodollar is the basis for the world economy. And what that means is the world economy and the U.S. economy are based on nuclear materials and nuclear events. And they use those nuclear materials and nuclear events to boost the value of the dollar and um, to... Uh, increase oil prices. And so it's the lever that makes prices go up and down, the value of the dollar and, and, um, uh, oil. Right. No, I mean, that's, I mean, that's obviously clear, the relationship, the fact that everyone in the world has to buy dollars in order to buy oil. That's obviously right. going to maintain the value of the dollar, uh, or at least the strength right. of the dollar, um, as an, as the, as the, as the, uh, currency of last resort. But how does a nuclear why is it necessary to utilize nuclear devices, is my question, as a lever? Uh, it's uh, it's somehow they've structured it that way. I don't understand it. Um, uh, I don't even understand Chernobyl. Um, an Indian admiral told me that Chernobyl was staged to end the Cold War and to uh, bankrupt Russia. And... Um, and what they're actually doing is using these nuclear materials in wars, in false flags, in all these ways, not just to boost the dollar and boost oil prices, but it's a global depopulation agenda. Mm-hmm. And I trace that uh, that desire to depopulate the world uh, back to the 1500s and even before that. And... Um, even you go to the Bible to Deuteronomy, and there's all these formulas and, and schemes and rules and everything on on depopulation. It's exactly what we're seeing happening today: forced um, forced relocation of whole populations, um, 
uh, creating refugees and victim populations. They can move somewhere else, steal all their property and land and everything. Mm-hmm. And they have to start all over again and they're, they're, they don't have any money. So they have low level jobs and, um, it's all making money for the bankers. Right. So when you when you start looking and realizing, okay, wow, this the skull and bones is obviously is real. Anthony Sutton, who was a professor, um, right. I believe at Stanford, wasn't it? He, I mean, he was yeah. a very, very, you know, he's a very well educated conservative guy. Comes across this information and actually does one of the best exposés on skull and bones and the various banking families like Harriman and Bush that come from it. Yeah. Um, and obviously, the, the founders of Skull and Bones were involved in the. You mentioned Dope Inc. That was very much tied into the dope traffic, the creation of Skull and Bones in the 19th century here. Maybe even going back to the, the Illuminati, because similar there's similar uh, symbolism between the two organizations. But right. when it comes to your investigation, you start looking at the bankers. How do you come across this notion of hmm? There's certain bloodlines here that are actually ancient, and actually you can actually make a case that this is not. Just a new, uh, this concept of new world order is not uh, basically post, uh, 1776 Illuminati formation or even, you know, 18th century English Freemasons. This is a much older, uh, scheme and generational, um, design. Well, what, what started it was, um, I, I wanted to, um, go back in history. I started wanting to look in, into deep history. Now, astrophysics, and geosciences have a deep history or, um, yeah, it's a deep history, a deep time. It's called deep time um, aspect or dimension that other disciplines do not have. The Earth is four and a half billion years old. So that's a long history, and you have to develop ways to connect the dots, uh, the evidence that you find when you excavate fossils or you uh, go out and collect rock samples and study mountain chains or whatever. And not all the evidence is there. So you have to kind of fill it in uh, the best you can. And you need all the tools, not just science. You need all the tools to try to figure it out. And so I wanted to know more about the history of science and um, where did these ideas for nuclear weapons and depopulation come from. It seems to be very old, and I traced it back to Deuteronomy, and it's much older than that. And um, and so then I started getting interested in the Jesuits. First it was the Masons, then it was the Jesuits, but the Jesuits were started in 1500 mm-hmm. by uh, Pope Paul III. Now, Fidel Castro is Iranian. He is directly descended from Pope Paul III, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, but then I ended up going back to the Crusades because my family, on my father's side, they were Moray's, which means the Moorish people or the people from the Middle East. And it was the Knights Templars who brought them back to Europe, and it's the Moray's who set up the entire banking infrastructure of Europe. They set up hospitals and they set up fire departments for uh, public safety. And um, they they really civilized Europe. And uh, then I wanted to know, well, well, uh, uh, where did the 
you know, the Jesuits are really just rebranding of things that existed before. So who 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 is behind all of this? And I somehow started studying Fidel Castro. And uh, Pope Paul III uh, was a Renaissance young man, and it was at the end of the Dark Ages, and the Borgia family sent him, uh, I'm sorry, his family sent him from northern Italy to the Vatican to when he was 19 to work under a Borgia who was Pope Alexander, and his daughter was Luc- Lucretia Borgia. You've probably heard of her. And... Um, so it was really interesting because um, Alessandro Farnese, that was his name, uh, was um, he was a cardinal by the time he was 24. And then when uh, Pope Alexander, Al- Alexander um, died, um, uh, Alessandro Farnese became uh, Pope Paul III. So this is Alexander VI, his predecessor? I think so, yeah. Because he was he presided over the conquest of the Americas, essentially, under Christendom, right? The notion yes, that right. he actually issued the papal bull saying the Americas belong to, to Christ and all the lands right. basically belong to the Catholic Church. Right. But these are ancient, ruling Iranian bloodlines. Many of the popes were actually Iranian. They're Zoroastrian worshippers. Uh, they also worship Mithra. And... Um, Mithra is represented by a young man in a, um, a kind of a soft uh, felt hat that kind of falls over at the front. And that hat, I started following the signs and symbols because all of a sudden we were into ancient Iranian signs and symbols. And that's when the bloodhound on in me really got on the right trail. And I said, well, uh, Confucius always said a very, very long time ago, um, it, it's signs and symbols that rule the world, not words and laws. And so then I locked on to the signs and symbols, and that was a helicopter ride. It was a big acceleration of my research and really getting to um, the right places. And what was so interesting about Castro is that I discovered um, that First of all, um, he his father came from Spain, and Castro had been saying, maybe for the last two or three years, I've heard him saying in the public media that his family are Jewish and that they were conquistadors. But um, but I just thought something was strange in Cuba. Uh, all that whole victim population that's trapped there, and they're all Jesuits, and uh, Jesuits are an army. They're military, they're for spying, and they're atheists. They don't even believe in God. Dostoevsky and Napoleon, many, many, many famous world leaders have even said that about the Jesuits. So I said, well, um, uh, well, what are they about? And I discovered the Villa Farnese that um, Alessandro Farnese started to build when he was Pope Paul III was actually, he started the Jesuits with the Borgias, and um, and they work together a lot, and they are part of what you call the Vatican or the papal nobility. And they intermarry. 
-hmm. And I'm going to uh, read a list of them because this is who the Illuminati are. Um, uh, These are the ten um, uh, Roman families. Uh, They were Roman emperors and, and then Vatican and Jesuit are all involved. And, but they're the, the Illuminati. So it's the uh, Farnese, Borgia, Colonna, Gettani, uh, Medici, uh, Pamphili, Orsini, Elder Brandini, Chigi, and Conti. Now, the Elder Brandinis are really, really interesting. They uh, are actually Arabs from Mesopotamia. And... Uh, Aldo Brandini, Aldo Bran means devil. And so this is where the Satanism and the Satanic influences the Talmud and the, the Kabbalah from magic cults in Mesopotamia. And they encouraged pedophilia with children under eight years old. They had, um, it, they weren't religious. It was, they were not religious texts. They were about magic. Mm-hmm. And and about um, uh, um, I've forgotten which al- al- alchemy al- alchem- alchemy right. alchemy. I think the yeah. Elder Brandini's weren't they the financiers of Kubrick's films? Yes, I believe that's where I've heard their name. Yeah. and obviously yeah. the one thing about Elder Brandini, it's always interesting. Is is there some correlation to the Aldebaran star system? Because yes. it's obviously the na- the name is has some synchronicity to it. Yes, it does. In these old names. They've, they've had them for 5,000 years. They keep their names and they have very, very strict, uh, breeding programs. First of all, this, these are ancient Iranian tribes, the original Indo-Europeans or Aryans, and all of the Eurasian continent from the Pacific to the Atlantic has been populated from Central Asia and many of them were um, Indo-European or Iranian. They have very white skin. They have very black hair. And the most cruel tribe were the Meds, M-E-D or M-E-D-E. Mm-hmm. And what is the Prime Minister of Russia's name? Medvedev. Mm. He has very white skin and very black hair. Um, the uh, The president of Greece, Cyprus. Cyprus is the word for Cyprus. Mm-hmm. And he has very black hair and very white skin. And um, uh, and Cyprus means that he's, his family originate, originated in Cyprus. Mm-hmm. And the Farnese bloodline actually were the Ptolemies or the last uh, dynasty of the ancient Egyptians. And they ruled from Cyprus. Right, right. Well, Ptolemy's obviously interesting history because he was potentially, some historians say, Alexander the Great's half-brother because there was some speculation that Philip had, had actually had an affair with Ptolemy's mother and was actually the real father of him. And then obviously there was suspicion that Ptolemy was part of the poisoning of Alexander. If Alexander was in fact killed uh, after conquering, basically after uniting the East and West, if he was assassinated in Babylon, Ptolemy was most likely candidate because he was his, one of his chief security officers or bodyguards. So if he was yes. poisoned, he would he would have had to have been involved in some capacity. Yes. And they, and he was involved in two other generals were also, but he was one of ten generals 
who were the personal bodyguards of the Caesar. And, um, and Alexander appointed him regent of Egypt and gave his sister to Ptolemy in marriage. Mm. And so, um, Alessandro Farnese, he's named for Alexander the Great. Um, um, Alexander um, the Sixth, you mentioned. And yes, yes. Even and, uh, and also, there are many, obviously, yeah. there's many references to Alexander as far as the bloodline, but think, but going back to the nature of, of what Alexander represented was basically someone who was all of a sudden was, is intending to basically conquer that seed of empire from Persia, but ultimately could have been basically hoist by his own petard, as they say, ultimately he was sabotaged at the end of it once he had, once he had unified these, 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 these two peoples, or really more than two peoples, but this mass, yes. landmass, uh, yes. and ultimately died in Babylon, and Babylon maintained its, its power as a hub through the influence of the Ptolemies, and then talk a little bit about the Romans as well, because his emp- Alexander's empire was a predecessor for the Roman Empire. The Romans were all Iranians, and Romania is named for the Roman soldiers and guards, which were taken from Romania to Italy. All of Italy, uh, well, actually, the Farnese family uh, must have been royals in the Parthian Empire, the First World Empire. And when that collapsed, his family moved into uh the Farnese family moved into Cappadocia, which is eastern Turkey. Then they moved into northern Italy, and the Farnese family started the 12 flagship cities of the Etruscan Empire. That civilization, they destroyed it and roused it to the ground. They do this to every civilization that they start. They build it up, they pump it, and then they harvest the money and they destroy the people. And they move on and create a new, a whole new civilization. That is exactly the transition we're in now. They are destroying the Western economy and Western civilization, if you can call it civilized. Gandhi didn't. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they are now creating a whole new world economy, uh, with Russia. And China, hmm. and um, and Putin is the new czar. I see. So ultimately, the families—it is just—it is just a, a game of empire, and the fact of conflict yeah. between Russia and America and whatnot—that's really just shifting the emphasis towards the Russian Chinese sphere and the in the East. But how would you see so America? What would America's ultimate evolution look like? Let's say, if according to this this idea of we're basically modern day Rome. So Rome is burning. America is burning as far as the financial system is concerned, and we're overextended militarily. Ultimately, we're gonna we're gonna have to suffer our own hubris. That's right, and um, I believe that because of the experiment that was North America, especially the United States. We got away from their control, and um, the Jesuits were very, very unhappy and very nervous, very concerned about the United States, and um, many people left Europe to get away from the Jesuits, and a lot of them came here. A lot of them were titled, they were educated, they were brilliant, and 
uh, just the hybrid vigor of mixing all those people from all over the world and all their different ideas and their different talents and um, all of the corporate knowledge they had from their own cultures came to the United States and this was a magnificent uh, blooming of freedom and freedom of thought and freedom to create and freedom to um, own your own business or do anything you wanted to. Uh, I'm not saying it was easy. It wasn't easy, you know, being pregnant and going across the plains in a covered wagon or over the Sierras or whatever. But uh, people, uh, they just believed there was something better. And so a lot of the people who came to the Americas were the strongest and the brightest. And they were strong and they were bright. And that's why they were able to leave their countries of origin. But when they did that, they gave up uh, their identity, their internal identity. I mean, people are tied to their land for thousands of years. And um, when you give that up and you give up your cultural identity, you're giving up all of your internal validation. And so it uh, resulted in a culture that um, a lot of the validation is external. So it's where you live or your address or um, who you married or what kind of car you drive or how many televisions you have. So the validation in America is very heavily concentrated in things that are external to people and it can be taken away at any time. So Americans have insecurities about that. Um, if you talk to an Eskimo or you went and talked to General Shoigu, the Minister of Defense for Russia, um, he was born in a yurt in uh, Siberia. He was a nomad from a nomadic family. And um, I know why Putin appointed him uh, for his Minister of Defense. It's because he's very, very honest. He's very committed to uh, doing uh, very good things. He's very, very smart. And he's smooth. He's efficient. He just does it. And he was not, he Putin knew he would not steal money from military projects. And something happened very bad recently. Putin awarded uh, millions and millions, hundreds of millions of dollars to build a spaceport for Russia. And uh, all that money disappeared and the spaceport was never built. And, and it, it's getting built now. And Putin put uh, Shoigu in charge of it. So he knows that will happen. And um, uh, the Americans don't even have a way to get men up to the up to the space station. It's all in uh, Russian. Or it's been uh, privatized in the American case. Yes, that's but the, right. So my point is, do you think that, I mean, by your tone, you don't see Russia then as a threat in the sense of where the Illuminati is, is for example, allowing, as you say, Putin to become the new czar, but you don't see Russia as a potential threat to America. Actually, Russia represents a lot of the American tradition or traditional values of uh, technology, science and technology development. I mean, that's what I, that's what we see, for example, coming out of China and Russia now is pro-development initiatives that have been lost on the United States, which developed this post-industrial mentality. We don't need infrastructure. We don't need to build anything. We can outsource our, our industrial capacity to other countries. And now we're basically just suffering the consequence of being a service sector economy. 
Right. Uh, first of all, Russia has always been been ruled by Iranians, and it still is. Um, if you look at the czars, they had very white skin and very black hair. Um, the uh, corruption is uh, just inherent. It, I think it's genetic in Russia. And uh, one of Putin's goals when he became the president of Russia was to clean up the corruption. And he has done that, and he's been very, very good at it. Um, and you can compare him to George H.W. Bush, who um, didn't do anything but increase the corruption. And um, there, it's quite different uh, different goals in, in the leaders. Uh, now, with the United States and Russia, we are not enemies. We're pretend enemies. Right. And the U.S., economy and the Russian economy would have collapsed if they had not been in a cold war. And underneath the cover of that cold war, Russia and the United States secretly collaborated on the creation of the most horrific weapon system in the history of this planet. And it's called HARP. Now the Russians are very, very good scientists, and we never could have developed TARP without uh, doing joint, doing it jointly with the Russians. And they started going to the Arctic in 1898 doing uh, scientific expeditions. And by 19, the 1930s, they had permanent scientific stations on ice flows all over the Arctic, and they manned them 365 days a year. And so where the ice calves off of the, uh, the uh, continental material surrounding the, the Arctic region of uh, North America and, and Europe, um, it, the water from the Pacific enters the Arctic Sea there. The huge pieces, chunks of ice uh, calve off, and they float around like ice cubes in the Arctic Ocean. And some of them are big enough to land planes on. They put all kinds of sophisticated scientific gadgets and, and equipment. And they've been studying the Arctic since 1898. So who would know the Earth's magnetic field, uh, the currents, the atmosphere, all of that better than the Russians? So we could not have done it without Soviet Russia. But we also gave... Uh, Russia, the nuclear weapons program, and we gave Russia printing plates. And Colonel um, Prudy, uh, Lester Prouty, uh, was actually in a plane, and he's written about it, that landed in Russia, in the Soviet Union, and they delivered these printing plates and plutonium to the Soviets so they could have a uh, their own uh, nuclear weapons program and these printing plates were to print American dollars to fund their program with. Right. But I want to ask so, about the HARP, though, because you say that's the most destructive yeah. weapon in history. But for people yeah. that don't know what HARP really does, I think you know that's obviously a, a big question. Okay. HARP is a very exotic uh, kind of physics based on um, a Serbian scientist at the turn of the century named Nikolas Tesla, who... Um, was very, oh, he was a genius. He was the, a genius of, of the last 200 years or more. 
And um, this is a new kind of physics. It's, uh, it's about the electrojet, huge currents of electricity, more than is on the whole surface of the Earth, are moving through, circulating through the atmosphere. And um, the water moisture, the rivers of water up there, it's more than all the water on the planet. And so Tesla did very, very interesting research. He ended, come, ended up coming to um, the United States, and he worked for um, J.P. Morgan. He worked for Thomas Edison. My great-grandfather worked for Thomas Edison and actually wired the very first Navy ship. And he was also um, the vice president in charge of neon signs. So he went all over the United States introducing and selling neon signs. And, I mean, he was an experimenter, too. But Nikola's Tesla was treated very, very badly. Everybody tried to steal his patents. Everybody tried to steal his ideas. And that poor man... Um, died in poverty in a hotel room, and he was probably murdered by uh, or at the request of the Rockefellers because all of his lab books and all of his scientific notes and experiments uh, disappeared, and he'd even written them in code. And so these uh, technologies that are rooted in Nikola Tesla's work um, have been perverted to be applied to uh, the bet for the benefit of the bankers. But mine control, subsurface um, mineral exploration from satellites with a 30-watt signal, that's what's in a, a sewing machine ball. And they can penetrate uh, very deeply into the surface of the Earth. They can map ore bodies. And they can even map the quality, the grade of the ore, and it's Bechtel that's done it all over the world. Right. And um, and then they can calculate how much money they can get out of a particular ore, ore body. They don't even need geologists on the ground anymore. You can do it all from satellites. Um, but as far as HARP is like the ionospheric manipulation technology, yes, is that yes. what it boils down to as a directed energy weapon? Yes, it's a directed energy weapon. Uh, you can use it for a lot of other things. The chemtrails are part of it. Um, they started um, uh, shooting uh, rockets up into the ionosphere and releasing radioactive materials. That came out of um, Christophilus, who was a brilliant scientist at Livermore. And when they got all his ideas, he proposed to, to develop a nuclear weapons atmospheric testing program to get the radioactive particles up into the atmosphere with nothing to do with weapons. And um, he was, and then when they got his ideas and everything, they murdered him. And um, so all of these applications, so mind control, all this stuff I've been talking about and much, much more, all of that can be done with HARP. Now, there is a tectonic warfare application to it. So the Sumatra earthquake, the Kobe earthquake, all these earthquakes that are happening all over the world are off scale. I have a, a, a graph of earthquakes, large earthquakes, going back to 1898. It's a United States Geological Survey document. It's scientific data. Mm -hmm. And 
1995 when the 14 key HARP patents were given by the CIA to the British. They were turned over to the British. Um, the large-scale earthquakes went up exponentially, and they were even greater than any natural earthquakes in the last 100 years. And so that's one of the fingerprints of uh, when you know it's harp. They always do storms that are bigger than any storm that's ever been in nature, and earthquakes bigger than any... Well, it seems like any- it's also part of the overall scheme of controlling the money supply, so you can basically, if you have a disaster, it's disaster relief, right? The, mo- the point is you, you yes. move it over, you, you have a, a disaster, an event, it needs relief work, you basically can shift money over into that country... Um, yes. On the surface, it, it goes to the people, but it never really does. It always goes to the agencies that can, that control the relief, right. to the major companies that are in charge of feeding people. And so right. it's very interesting how the money shifts around the board. Um, but to tie it really just back to, to that that issue of the Jesuits and the New World Order concept and how they're using all these different games to basically maintain their yes. own power structure at the level of the bankers. Um, That's right. The, the, real, the final question really would be, how do you see the the Pope as being as he is the Black Pope, who was formerly the Black Pope, right, the head of the Jesuits, now being Pope Francis, and he comes to the, to America to the New World recently? Do you see this almost as as a final consummation of the New World Order of his visit to the United States as part of this this uh, announcement or initiation of the new phase of the New World Order? Well, I'd like to quote Francis Borgia, who was the a friend of Alessandro Farnese. And it was Borgia who found Loyola and sent him to uh, Alessandro Farnese in the Vatican. Uh, Francis Borgia lived in Spain. He was a Spanish duke. And he said, he said twice, the Jesuits, will be completely humiliated and disbanded and destroyed. But we'll come back. And he said in the third time, the eagles will help us and there will be no reversing it. And that's, the eagles are Russia. The eagles are Russia, not the United States. Not the United States, Russia. So Russia is basically now an instrument of the Jesuit power in the world. But, but remember, Russia is ruled and always has been by Iranians. Or ancient Iranians. No. I would say people would confuse the modern day Persians with the ancient Persians. We're talking about the ancient bloodlines, not the modern this is, rulers. This is 5,000 years. I'm talking about 5,000 years. These ancient Iranians have ruled and controlled the world for 5,000 years. Who are some of the modern Iranian bloodlines? Nancy Pelosi, Fidel Castro, uh, probably um, a Christ, Christian, I think her name is, or Christina uh, Lagarde, the head of the IMF. Um, uh, the Shavaran was uh, Pahlavi. The Pahlavi tribes are part of these ancient ruling bloodlines from the uh, first Parthian world empire. Um, uh, oh, gosh, uh, the Breakspears. In England, uh, Breakspeare and um, uh, another one in Italy, Pepe, Pepe, I can't remember his name. Anyway, those two men rule the world. And the um, 
uh, Breakspear, I had to look that up. I said, how'd they get Iranian blood in, in England? Well, I looked up the Pope that the Breakspears are descended from. He was Iranian. Mm. And you can tell by the physical features in those uh, images I sent you of Castro and his bloodline. They have uh, very uh, hollowed out cheeks and uh, nice chins and they have we would call them Western noses and, and features, but those are really Iranian, Aryan features that um, had, were proliferated throughout Europe. Right. And um, another thing is that the Iranian tribes, about 14,000 years ago, they had genetic mutations that caused red hair, blonde hair, blue eyes, hazel eyes, gray eyes, and this is a genetic mutation that was passed through the tribe. So anytime you see a redhead, a blonde, blue eyes, what is Putin? He has blue eyes and blonde hair. Those are Iranian, ancient Iranian bloodlines. But the whole Eurasian continent is just a gigantic mixing bowl of people breeding with other people and mixing up all the tribes and all the genes. and, and Yeah, of eat. course. It yeah. makes it complicated to boil right. it down, right? But if you see red hair, blonde hair, um, very white skin and black hair, uh, these blue eyes and green eyes and hazel eyes, and I have hazel eyes, and I have that, that same Central Asian uh, kind of Iranian look, well, my father's family came from probably Palestine or Syria. And so I have Iranian, I have Iranian probably mostly blood in my, <laughs> in my, my body. A lot of us do, but we're not yeah. part of the Illuminati. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not Illuminati. <laughs> well, I think we, we, we could go in, we could go on for hours talking about this, but uh, we'll wrap it up for now. Where can people find more of your information and uh, oh. your, your research and your interviews and whatnot? Um, my website is info. Thank you for asking. And there are many, many documents that I've written. Um, they are based on science. I have a 100 uh, references on the two pa papers I wrote on Fukushima. Uh, they can be used as expert material in uh, Congress and for bills or in uh, trials, war crimes, tribunals, but mostly I wrote them for the ordinary people, for my fellow citizens to be able to protect themselves from radiation by using the proper water filters, the reverse osmosis filter, and we have photos and, and recommend a particular brand that we use and it's the only filtration system that removes most of the radiation from drinking water. And then there are um, all kinds of information about depleted uranium. Uh, there are lots of uh, stories and, and interviews. Um, I've done many, many, many um, interviews, and, and those are they're all links to those. Um, I did some on MH370, the um, the Malaysian air crash in, in a, a little over a year ago, a year and a half ago, in Malaysia, in the South China Sea. 
I put all of the forensics in. I explained all everything about the science behind it. And that's how I get to the truth. It's to go through the scientific trail. Mm-hmm. And because I know how to evaluate science, I know how to use it. Um, I went to Japan in uh, the year, um, um, let's see, 2000. And no, in um, about 2003, and I actually spent the summer, I was only going for a week, but these lawyers heard about me and they were representing the survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in the courts and they never won a lawsuit since World War II. And so I went with a new radiation risk model uh, from the European Parliament and um, I spent the whole summer all night long in lawyers' offices who were representing these poor survivors, and I taught them this whole new risk model, all of the science behind it, how to use it in the courtroom, how to educate the judges, how to um, educate the public, and one year later, they were winning every lawsuit for those poor survivors, and it was in the most conservative courts so that was something that I feel um, uh, very good about uh, that I was able to help those people I was able to apologize as an American for what my government did to those innocent people and um, a lot of people know me in Japan Um, I predicted the Fukushima disaster in 2003 in the Japan Times it, it's called uh, Japan's Deadly Game of Nuclear Roulette. Um, I've been in newspapers and on television all over the world. I've been in 50 countries. And my mission is just really simple, and my life is really simple. It's to educate the public about the danger of nuclear technologies and then how to protect themselves. Yeah, And this is all on the website, and thank you for letting me describe it. Absolutely. So, info, and uh, we'll tell people to go there and check out more from you. Thank you for joining us today, Loren. Thank you, Sean. Well, there you go, folks. Some interesting insights into perhaps the shadow government that really rules the world. Regardless if you believe it or not, there certainly seems to be a shift in power these days, and it's not about getting on the right side of history, but getting on the right side of our own thinking, and that is to say, how do we protect and promote humanity in the best way possible? This is Sean Stone signing off.